0: What's going on everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm going to do my best to get it through as many of these. I say this literally every time. I'm going to do my best to get through as many of these as I can in roughly 30 minutes. But if we just keep rolling, we keep rolling. I do have a little bit longer time today, so we'll see how this goes. Um, I think I could get through most of these. We'll see how many tangents I go on. So without further ado, first question. If I have a glass of wine, a standard pour, I think it's like roughly five ounces, right? A standard pour. Um, With my dinner, am I ruining my gains? First of all, the answer is no, but how many like sweet mother of gods do I wanna add in front of that answer? You're absolutely not ruining your gains if you have a glass of wine with dinner, even if you did it every single day. Could you argue the flip side that it's helping your health in some way? No, I think that it's pretty clear unless you're doing extreme mental gymnastics, that no amount of alcohol is healthy, basically in any way, shape, or form. Um, in terms of net health, you know, you can, again, you could do mental gymnastics and try and, oh, this red wine has resveratrol and these antioxidants. It's like, it's not a net benefit. The amount of uh, red wine you'd have to drink to get the, an amount of antioxidants that would be meaningful, you would die of alcohol poisoning, right? It's like not necessary, not helpful. But one glass per day, in the context of all the other things that decide your gains or even just overall health, I don't think you have literally anything to worry about at all. I think that's totally fine. I don't Again, I don't think you can spin that as a like a healthful thing. It is, oh, I'm doing this for my health. You're not doing that, but there are some people who would do that sort of mental gymnastics. It's not helpful in any way, shape, or form. You might say, I know it's not helpful uh, from a, like, chemical standpoint, but it helps me relax or that one glass of wine is enjoyable and it's part of a routine that I like. That That's awesome. Those things totally potentially real. So all good. Uh, chemically speaking, not helpful to your body physiologically in any way, but cool. It could be part of a routine you like. And if it's, we're talking about one glass of wine here, it's really it's just in the scheme of things, not a big deal. The next question is, uh, which angel is your favorite? Uh, and somebody asked, uh, seriously though, did you expect to have a little little community within the group, like a little sub-community? Basically, there's people within my group who have found each other and became close friends. And I think some of them started a group chat. Um, and I, I freaking love that. Did I expect to have this like sub-community within the group of people finding each other and enjoying like each other's company and becoming friends? I don't know if I had any expectations to be totally honest with you. I've been enjoying this process of the group coaching program for a long time. And I'm not really even sure what I envisioned happening. I think people finding each other and becoming friends and cheering each other on and having a community feel and all of that stuff was something I absolutely hoped would happen. Um, but yeah, I don't think I had really any expectations of what would happen. I, I'm stoked. I know a lot. Of, I know the person asking, asking this question. I know a lot of you guys who are interacting with each other. I fucking love it. I absolutely love it. Um was there anything else I was gonna say on that? No, I didn't think my expectations were pretty open and I'm stoked. If you are in my group and you're listening to this, we use the hashtag jackedwithjordan. Some people use hashtag jordansangels, um, both of which you know I follow and a lot of other people in the group follow. So if you wanna get to know each other, cheer each other on, see what other people are doing, et cetera, follow those hashtags and tag me and those hashtags when you post you know, your workouts or your screenshot of the day or whatever that is. Um, it's really been a ton of fun to see you guys work. Seriously, it, it gives me a ton of pleasure. Next question for doms or for soreness. I know it's okay to lift, but walking may help? Question mark. Can I do something to help the pain? So I think as a general principle, doing things that reduce soreness aren't the best plan or at least aren't in any way really helpful for gains. But doing things that can help with the pain, it's like, it's like, I wouldn't want somebody to to see that, oh, ice baths reduce, reduce soreness. So I should do that when I'm sore or taking an anti-inflammatory, like an NSAID reduces soreness. And I should, so I should take that when I'm sore. I wouldn't want you to do any of those things. Very likely they have a negative impact on gains, if, if anything at all. Um, but in the one context where I think doing something about your soreness or that sort of pain that you're feeling has an, has some sort of application is if that soreness is so intense, that pain is so intense that it's, it's actually stopping you from living your life in some way. I mean, there's a reason why basketball players, after the game, they hop in an ice bath. It's because they're not actually concerned with making adaptations from that workout. They're not concerned with, hey, I just did this workout, I had this game, and I want to make sure that I maximally adapt to that. that. That's not what they're thinking. They are thinking, I can't be sore because we've got to play again tomorrow or the next day. And so they are trading out maximal adaptation for maximal recovery. And so they want to be able to perform again well with no pain ASAP, even if that comes at the cost, which it does, of maximal adaptations. I would say that athletes in the off-season, when they're trying to get better, I wouldn't recommend doing those things. During the season, when performance is more important than adaptations, I would recommend those things. So for you, can I do something to help with the pain? Generally, the only thing that I would even recommend doing is just not sitting down for eight hours, is going for a walk, is remaining active, getting some blood flow, staying hydrated. I wouldn't go out of your way to do something, some fancy thing. You get a massage or you're doing an ice bath, or you're taking an anti-inflammatory. I wouldn't do any of that stuff to reduce soreness. Again, unless that pain is inhibiting you from living your life. If your legs are so sore that you can't, you know, let's say you're a teacher and you're on your feet all day and the soreness is just fucking killing you. Okay, in that case, you need to do your life. You need to be able to perform in the way you want to perform. So, some of those things might be helpful. I think walking is a great one. You said uh, walking may help, question mark. Walking may help. Stimulating blood flow is, is helpful. Uh, probably doesn't have any negative, definitely doesn't have any negative impact on gains. And the way I would go about doing that is just not being a sloth and sitting at the computer for 10 hours a day. I would make sure I'm getting my steps. If you can do that intermittently throughout the day, that, that might be a little bit more helpful than just doing it in one bulk shot. But even doing it in, all, in one bulk shot or you know um, in a couple more concentrated periods of time to, you know, get cardio, let's say by getting on a treadmill, instead of like being the kind of person who can just get up multiple times per day, that's still really great. Um, so I think walking is fine, but I wouldn't go out of your way to try and reduce soreness through these like things that you do after training. In many cases, the things that you're doing to reduce soreness are also reducing the adaptations that you're getting from whatever that stimulus was. Next question. Is there a difference between hypertrophy and lifting for strength? Yes. Uh, I think I have an entire podcast on this. I'm going to link it if I have it. Um, if not, what can be some of the fundamental differences? Strength, for the most part, is a neurological quality. Basically, it's like your body's ability to produce high amounts of force. And hypertrophy means literally the accretion or the or, or putting on more muscle tissue or gro- growing is basically what hypertrophy means. Um, And so when it comes to the difference between training between these two things, what we see is that hypertrophy is gonna have a little bit more volume, is going to have, or primarily be in a little bit more of a moderate rep range, which means for strength, you might do a lot of your training in like the one to eight rep range. And for hypertrophy, you would do a lot of your training in like the five to 30 rep range, maybe even more concisely in that like five to 15 rep range, just because at those really high loads, really low reps, it's really difficult to accrue enough volume to actually send in hypertrophic stimulus. If you want to lift heavy weights, the most important thing for lifting heavy weights is lifting heavy weights. What I mean by that is like, if you want to get stronger in like sets of one, if you want to increase your one RM, you really need to lift really, really heavy weights. If you want to hypertrophy or you want to grow your muscle, what you really need to do is just accrue a lot of really good high quality stimulus. And so for strength, it's a little bit more specific. The stuff that you have to do is a little bit more specific. If you want to lift really heavy loads, you have to lift really heavy loads. If You want to grow and you want to build, you know, if you want to hypertrophy your muscle tissue, you need to accrue a lot of high quality volume. Not, not, it's not that more is always better, but an amount that you couldn't do if the weight was so freaking heavy. So for hypertrophy, you're going to train in a more moderate rep range in that five to 30 rep range, maybe more like five to five to 15 most of the time. And that rep range is like an inverse proxy for the amount of load you'd have to use. Because you're using a little bit more reps, you're going to obviously have to use a little bit less load. You probably do a little bit more sets. And then for strength, you're going to do a little bit higher loads, a little bit less reps, maybe a little bit less total sets, just because the relationship between volume and strength is not as connected. They're not as correlated. Um, what else can I tell you on that? The one thing that bugs me about like strength is what does, someone's like, hey, what's, I want to get strong. It's like, what do you want to get strong at? This, I, I'm going to go on a small tangent. Someone's like, hey, what's, what, you know, how do I get stronger? I'm like, get stronger at what? Like, if you're lifting for hypertrophy, let me be very clear with you guys. Our goal is going to be to get stronger in the hypertrophy lifts, in the hypertrophy rep range. So someone's like, I want to get stronger. I'm okay, stronger for sets of eight stronger for sets of 10, stronger for a one rep max. What do you mean by strength? Because whatever that thing is that you want to get stronger at, you're going to have to roughly do that thing. And so if someone's like, hey, I want to really get strong, really get stronger for sets of eight. Okay, well, you're going to have to do sets of eight. And you know, and that doesn't mean you only do sets of eight. But a lot of times people are like, oh, I want to get stronger. It's like, Stronger for sets of three, stronger at the deadlift. Strength is a very specific thing. What are we talking about when we say, I want to get stronger? Are you talking about stronger like a power who has to do a one rep max of a squat bench deadlift or stronger in general where you're like, hey, I want to be able to deadlift my body weight 10 times or whatever that is. And so when we talk about strength, we need to be specific. A lot of times people are like, well, I guess I really don't care about what I can do once. I want to be stronger for sets of five to 10. Well, that's great. You can do that and get amazing hypertrophy. Um, So anyway, that's something that I always say if someone's like, oh, I really want to get stronger. It's like, I really want to know what you want to get stronger at. And even if you are driven by seeing the load on the bar go up, even if you're somebody who's excited about lifting more weight, it doesn't mean you need to do strength training. Shit, man. Every single time you go into the gym in a hypertrophy program, you're going to try and do a little bit more. You're going to try and increase what you're doing, whether that's through reps or load. Over time, you'll have to do both. And so if you're someone like, hey, I really want to get stronger. Should I do hypertrophy training? Absolutely. You're going to get stronger doing hypertrophy because you're going to get stronger at the stuff you're doing. And it might be more optimal for building muscle. But if you want to get really strong at sets of one, sets of two, doubles, triples, sets of five, yeah, okay. Maybe you're going to have to do a little bit heavier load training, a little bit less reps, a little bit less total sets. And then obviously whatever you want to get strong at, deadlift, squat, the bench, whatever, you have to also train that thing and potentially some like you know, programming implications around that thing. Quick sip of water. We'll keep it going. Um, is there any benefit to eating prior to a workout? If so, what should I eat? Um, basically, is is there some form of pre workout nutrition tips that I would have, and how meaningful is that? The truth is, not really meaningful at all. Uh, like, like at all. Um is there any benefit to eating prior to training? So that that question, that initial question says, if I train fasted or if I eat before training, is there a difference? There technically is a small difference. We see in the research that you probably perform better when you eat, but we see that whatever you do habitually matters the most. And so if you are somebody who who does not normally eat breakfast before he or she trains, then we see that your performance is really good. If you're somebody who normally eats breakfast, and then that person doesn't eat breakfast and goes to train, they might feel worse. And so what we know from that is it's mostly what you do habitually. Your body will adapt to some degree to what you do. And what you are doing most of the time, so your total nutrition habits over time, your chronic nutrition habits, your uh, things that you're doing on a daily consistent basis are going to matter way more than what you ate before you trained. So, are you sleeping well in general? Are you eating roughly, generally across the day, across the week, enough calories? Are you eating enough protein across the week? Maybe enough carbohydrates, depending on the type of training you're doing. I'm way more concerned with somebody's habitual eating patterns than what they ate right before they trained. What you eat right before you tra- train is like a low, is like a very low reward, high risk. The reason I say high risk is that. What you eat before you train is not gonna make your workout, but it could break your workout. And what I mean is if you eat like something that you don't digest well, or you eat a ton of calories, which will take a long time to digest, and then you immediately go train, those things can can not entirely fuck up your training, but can have a negative implication. So I'm less concerned with what you need to be eating. I'm more concerned with what I don't want you to do. And I guess they're, they're pretty similar where I would say, hey, your best pre-workout nutrition strategy is to eat something that you digest well, in the time that you have to digest it before you train. So if I'm waking up crack acid on and I'm rolling out of bed into the gym, I'm probably not gonna eat anything because I have very, very little time between the time I wake up and the time that I'm training to eat or the time that I would be eating and the time I would be training. If I were to eat something, it would be probably liquid, either a shake or honestly, I might pound a little Gatorade or I'd have a banana, something incredibly fast digesting because I don't have long to digest it. If I'm training right now, what I do is I train at 5 p.m. My last meal is roughly at like 2, 2 2.30 p.m. before I train. That's a long time, two and a half, three hours, which means I can eat a decently sized meal. I have a decent amount of time to digest it. And so I'm just going to worry about having a balanced meal, some carbs, some protein, some fat, some fiber. I'm not going to worry about it a whole lot because I have a long time to digest it from a what should you eat perspective, I think a relatively balanced meal is a good idea. I just don't think people need to be like, oh, this is a perfect pre-workout meal. It's just not a thing. When we look at the research, it means just fuck all compared to what your actual daily habits are. And so if you train at a certain time, eat something that you digest well in the time you have to digest it. If you're gonna eat an hour before you train, make sure it's something you digest quickly and something that doesn't disrupt your GI system so that you don't have all that like blood allocated to the gut. If you're still digesting food, that takes blood away from the periphery, the outside of your body, down to your core, into your digestive tract because obviously that's the part of your body that's doing work while you're training. We want that not to be the case. We want to be allocating that blood, that blood flow to the muscles that were working during the workout. That was a bit of a ramble, but at the end of the day, I really just don't think this matters a whole lot. I would eat something that you digest well. Maybe carbs and protein are a little helpful, maybe, but... In the face of you eating enough total protein per day, total calories per day, total carbohydrates per day, I don't think, and the total carbohydrates has an asterisk over it for sure, but in the face of you doing these things adequately across the day on average, I don't think that this matters a whole lot. I would make sure you're going into your training not hungry and not stuffed and not still digesting and not cramping and not super full, not super bloated. Eat something that you freaking feel good when you go to train. That's by far the most important thing. Next, is there any, oh, nope, that's the same question. How long before I'm no longer getting newbie gains? I don't know. Honestly, these things are just made up concepts. Well, a newbie, a beginner, advanced. There's no like letter you get in the mail and it's like, hey, you've been training for six months. Those gains you've been getting, get ready for some worse gains. Um, you know, you're not a newbie anymore. Here's your intermediate card. It's like, that's not how this works. These are just made up constructs of like, just understanding that over the course of a training career, you make worse and worse gains over time. The more muscle you have, the slower you'll gain more of it. Um, I don't know. You know, there are people who've been training for 20 years, who have been exercising for 20 years that still have room for some really fast gains because maybe they weren't training specifically for hypertrophy or they weren't tracking their workouts. So they weren't eating and sleeping enough, not enough calories, not enough protein. And all of a sudden they check all these boxes. And they make amazingly fast gains for a decent amount of time, even though they've been exercising for 20 years. I think once you've been doing like two years of concise hypertrophy training with enough calories, enough sleep, enough protein, tracking your workouts, trying to progress. And by the way, that's a lot of caveats. So if you're checking all those boxes for two years, you've probably exited this phase, this newbie phase where you can expect really rapid results. But ah, shit, man, there are so many moving parts here of one of which is genetics and individual differences that we just don't know. You just don't know. I just wouldn't spend any time worrying about this. I would just accept and adopt and understand this idea that over time, results will come slower. Strength gains will come slower. Muscle gain will come slower. Physique change happens slower. Just adopting and understanding that as, hey, oh, the more I do this, the more I'm gonna have to do for less, that I get a diminishing return for every adaptation that our body makes, the more I do it, or the more of that adaptation that I get, more of that that kind of adaptation that happens within the body. That's probably the most important thing to understand. Trying to put like a parameter on that is really tough. I have a old podcast with uh, Rainer Trainer. Um, I'll put in the description, this was something that he and I talked about, which I think is, you know, it's both an interesting discussion and not interesting because we just have no way of kind of deciding exactly when this happens. Next question, not a question, but I'm a pharmacist and the misuse of medications for aesthetics is killing me. So what I think this person is referencing is recently I did a podcast with Abby Langer. Um, Wonderful, wonderful human. We had a great podcast and we talked about this epidemic of like regular people taking new weight loss drugs, specifically Ozempic or semaglutide, basically to just lose a few pounds and stay lean. Like this is like real medical prescription obesity medication that regular people are taking to like lose a couple of pounds of vanity weight. Um, where this is like, I'm not saying it has, as of right now, crazy negative uh, health consequences, but it is some serious shit. Um, they, most of them are, or this one in particular is a GLP-1 agonist, basically is a very strong uh, appetite suppressor. And this is not something that I would recommend taking if you're just an average person trying to shed a couple of pounds. This is something that you need to go through, correct channels, seeing your GP, talking with an endocrinologist, you know, talking and getting blood work done and seeing if you actually qualify for this medication. This is not something that I would get through a shady channel, some fucking spa, some health, uh, some like wellness hut, um... That and, and why, the reason I'm saying this that because that's what's happening. Like pe- these people are getting their hands on this stuff and they're selling it in their like medi spa wellness hut. You know, we do cryotherapy and we also can fucking inject you with some It's like absolutely frightening stuff. Um, and I have a client going through this process right now, and she actually has a relative who's going through a fucking super shady, um, a sh- a shady uh, alternate route. And it's just highlighting the fact that there are people out there who really need this medication, who cannot get it. I want to be very clear. There's a bit of a shortage. People cannot get it because people are, regular people are taking this off the market, who do not need it. Who are like, hey, I want to stay shredded. Basically, Kim Kardashian has made this into a thing. Kim Kardashian took this medication. It's fucking bonkers, by the way. It's literally insane. Um... Yeah, it's just wild stuff. So I'm bothered as well. I appreciate you bringing that up. I'll attach that podcast with Abby in the description if you guys want to listen to it. It's a wonderful episode. I thought, you know, maybe you guys will get something out of it. Next question, how to base your training not on a calendar week? And so, okay, this question is like, well, right now what we do is we train a certain amount of time. Most people train a certain number of times per week based on the seven-day calendar, right? How to base your training not on that? And so I have a good friend, Brian Borstein, who I know has been doing this for a while where Brian might say, you know what, instead of doing my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday lifting where I do four days out of seven, I might do six days out of 14 or eight, nine workouts in 14 days. And, or even on like an 11 day rotation where it's like, hey, okay, I work out six days every 11 days. Because, I mean, listen guys, at the end of the day, the, the not to get profound here, but like days of the week and like weeks and months, it's like all just like a made up human construct. Like your your body doesn't know what's happening in a week. It doesn't, doesn't know what a month is. It doesn't say, oh, we need to train this many times per week. It doesn't know that that's going on. What you need is an appropriate stimulus and recovery balance between those two. And can you do that by simplifying it and putting it in a seven day calendar week? because that really does sync up well with the rest of the way our world works? Yes. Do you have to do that? No. Uh, you could train f- at, you know, five. You could train on what we would call a 10-day microcycle. A microcycle is just like one round through all of your workouts. Most people, that microcycle is a week. You train once through all of your workouts in a week, and then you repeat it next week. You could have a 10-day microcycle, where your job is to get six workouts in in 10 days, and then that microcycle resets it would reset asymmetrically. You know, it might start today on a Monday and end next week on a Thursday and then it would start on Friday and end the following Wednesday or something. Personally, I don't love doing this. You totally could do it. I, again, there's no physiological reason you couldn't do this. Is it a little bit of like overcomplicating it for potentially no added benefit? Yeah, certainly that is the case. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. If it works for you, if it clicks for you, that's freaking awesome. I think most people have... Um, most people would do better to just sync it up with the regular seven day week that fits better, especially if you're like in a commercial gym and you know that on Tuesdays, you have a little extra time to get in a longer leg day or something like that. I have a client, she trains on Sundays, she goes to her CrossFit gym and that day is her leg day that where we do like squats and RDLs and stuff. I think we talked about her on a previous podcast, but the similar idea of like, we couldn't do that because every Sunday for her is the time that she has more time and we need to do this specific workout on that day. And then, you know, we can do like a cable-centric arm day at any time when the gym is crazy with the bros at 5 p.m. because we can get through that a little bit quicker. And so, you know, I'm not a big fan of this, but physiologically, is there a downside? No. I know you asked how to base your training not on a calendar week. Um, That is an incredibly specific question. I do think that I'm gonna end this question with the fact that you can do this if you want. It's about having an appropriate stimulus to recovery ratio and so it's not like hey we're going to train eight days out of nine like that that ratio of like eight days on one day off that's not a good ratio but if you're training seven days out of 12 i think that that could work fine you know and 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 things of that nature cool all righty next question what are the best options for deload complete deload comma etc okay well there's only one thing um what are the best options for deloads? So I'm going to link in the description episode 100, which is my full and updated 2022 thoughts on deloads. Um, I did an episode, I think it's episode, God, it's one of the first, one of my first episodes ever. And like two years later, you know, uh, I did an update to that podcast on my thoughts on deloads. So please go listen to that if you are interested. What's the most the most important thing about to understand about a deload is that The point is to drop fatigue. And so you have to do that in some way, shape, or form, which means you have to do something a little bit less. Um, There will be some, some people who say you don't actually need to do less. You just need to do something different and you can deload certain physiological pathways while we push hard in other certain physiological pathways. Personally, I'm not a big fan of doing this for reasons that I do discuss in that episode. My preference would be to either reduce the amount of sets you're doing or reduce the amount of difficulty within the sets. If you were doing four sets of like roughly two RAR or yeah, four sets of roughly two RAR, you could keep doing four sets, but maybe do something like five RAR. I mean, the point is to reduce the stimulus so that you can recover and resensitize to that hypertrophy stimulus. So we have to do less somewhere. You could do less sets. You could do kind of less days per week. You could do the same amount of sets and reps, but you could lower load. You could do the same amount of sets and load, but you could lower reps to make it easier. You could do a lot of things. What you need to do is you need to have an easy week, an easier week where you drop fatigue, resensitize to the training stimulus, both physiologically and psychologically, so that you feel ready to go on the back end of that. Personally, my favorite way to do that is to pair the physiological benefits of a deload, which is just like resensitizing and dropping fatigue, with practical benefits of practicing the new movements you're about to do for the next mesocycle, the next program, the next six weeks or so. So I like using an intro week paired with a deload week. So the first week of the program with the new movements, some old, some new, that you're gonna do for the next six weeks, that is our deload week. Essentially what that allows you to do is it allows you to practice these new moves, practice the setup, you know, where does the cable go? What height is the bench on? It lets me take a form video all within the context of I don't need to crush it this week. It's almost like uh, a practice week. but you're accomplishing a physiological task of dropping fatigue and, and resensitizing, but you're also getting a chance to practice stuff. How many of you guys in the first two you know two to four weeks of the program are still working on stuff? Ah, oh, what's my technique? How much weight should I use? What's a, you know what's a good rep range for me? Should I use this machine or that machine? How high should the cable be? If you could just have a week to, to figure that shit out, so that you don't need to figure it out during the time in which programming is supposed to be stimulating, to me, that's like such a win-win that you could give me all the physiological reasonings that you'd rather do something else, and and I hear you, but to get this practical benefit of a practice intro week and a deload week in the same week, to me, is just invaluable. It's absolutely the strategy that I prefer using. As far as reducing the difficulty of the week or the amount of stress on the body, I prefer actually to take down the set numbers a lot, as low as humanly possible. And I prefer to leave the sets pretty difficult. So I might program one set of each exercise that you're about to do for the next mesocycle at roughly a two RIR. Two RIR is freaking hard. That's a a really hard set. But you might be doing only four of those in the workout. The whole thing might take you 20 minutes. And so I would prefer to have fewer sets that are still really hard, that send just enough of a stimulus to retain muscle that week. Not that I'm so concerned with that, to be honest with you. Um, But because those sets are hard, again, it serves two practical benefits. One is because I'm telling you to use a 2 RIR, for a movement that's new for you, it's going to give you a chance to actually figure out what weight you want to use. If I give you a set at like five or six RIR, and then next week you show up for the first week of training and it says, hey, you got to train with 2 RIR, you got to then figure out again what weight to use for a 2 RIR. But if I give you a two to three RIR in in deload week, you're going to show up to week one and you're going to know exactly what weight to use because you're probably going to start at roughly a two or three RIR. And so I find that to be, again, another huge practical benefit. The other one that I, you know, while we're being thorough here is if you, like when you're learning a new movement, specifically when you're learning a new technique, you need the set to be hard. If the set is not hard, at least if the weight is not heavy enough for you, then you can do some wonky stuff with your technique. It's like if you're working on a, a dumbbell press on an incline, let's say, and you're, you just grab the five pound dumbbells and you're like, hey, I don't need to work that hard this week. I'm just gonna grab really light dumbbells. I'll practice my technique. And then you go grab, you know, the 60 pounders the next time you come in for your actual working weight What you can do, I know I'm not explaining this amazingly well, but the stuff that you can do, the way you can manipulate the load with the five pounders, you can push your fucking arms wherever you want. It's five pounds. You can do the technique wrong and it won't feel wrong because the weight isn't heavy enough to expose the fact that you're doing it wrong. It's like learning the technique is better when it's at least a little bit heavy. So if you want to learn the technique well, make the set a little bit hard. It's something we talked about in the group actually is during intro week, I'm watching a lot of people um, because I encourage you to not to not have to, this isn't supposed to be a crazy hard week, but sometimes I'll see someone grab like an empty barbell and do a set of RDLs. And I'm like, that's cool, but your technique is going to drastically change once you load weight on this bar. And so I recommend that you at least practice with something relatively difficult because it will allow your nervous system to actually get better at this technique because it's more like what you're going to do in the program. Awesome, what are we at, 30 minutes? What else do I got here? Uh, recently started to get nausea during intense sessions, used to be leg day, used to only be leg day suggestions. I would look at your pre-workout nutrition and make sure that if you, I would just take a look at it. You know, it could be a lot of things. If you're not eating before sessions and then you're consistently getting nauseous, maybe I would try eating a little bit of something. It could be, again, something very little, half a banana. It could be, uh, like a goo, like a, like a, like a glyc uh, oh, Jesus, gluc- <laughs> like a glucose gel, um, or like EAAs or a protein shake or something that you can, you know, just like a go-go squeeze something, you know, I fucking love go-go squeeze. Um, If you aren't eating and you're getting nauseous, try eating. If you are eating and then you're getting nauseous, maybe try not eating or maybe try eating less or maybe try eating something different or maybe try eating the same thing but a little bit earlier. Um, I would make sure that you have enough God, enough electrolytes in your system. Does that mean you need to be fucking pounding salt in water like every influencer says you have to do? No, but if you're getting nauseous, maybe look at your hydration status, maybe look at your electrolyte status, maybe try, you know, a couple cracks of salt in your water or a couple cracks in your pre-workout before you go. If you, you know, everyone's all hyped up on the element packets. I have element packets in my house. Maybe try a half of an element packet in some water within, you know, a couple hours from when you train. I think that that's all a good idea from a nutrition side of things. From a training side of things, I might generally recommend taking longer time between sets. That would be the number one thing I would take a look at. Um, Next, what is the max amount of muscles you can prioritize in a specialization cycle? So what I'll say on this is the amount of muscles that you can grow at the same time for most people is all of them. Most people don't need specialization cycles. That doesn't mean that, that, that people can't do specialization cycles or that they're going to be a net negative. That's not true. What I am saying is that the more muscular you get, the more jacked you get, the stronger you get, the heavier the weights are that you're lifting, the, you know, the more stimulus each muscle needs over time, at some point it's going to be tough to get all the stimulus you need for all muscles at all times now, I know my audience, 99.999% of you are not in this category. I'm not even in this category. I don't need to do special, I can grow everything. Um, you know, if you're a bodybuilder 20 years into it, you know, uh, I think maybe you, can, maybe you can consider specialization phases. The people who literally need specialization phases are not listening to this podcast, is my bet. Um, so the amount of muscles you can grow from a specialization cycle will get less the stronger you become if I, me, I can grow everything all at once. So I could specialize everything. But if I wanted to specialize something, I could probably specialize all of my upper body versus all of my lower body. If you are a really, uh, jacked and advanced bodybuilder, maybe you have to specialize chest and back and you have to put everything else on maintenance volume or like lower medium of a minimal effective dose volume. Um, so again, I don't think, Basically what's happening guys is the amount of fatigue that you would accrue by trying to grow everything all at once at some point will surpass the amount of fatigue you can actually, you know, recover from or the amount of stimulus you could actually recover from. And so at some point, if the amount of stimulus I need to, to grow my biceps, plus the amount of stimulus I need to grow my triceps, plus quads, plus glutes, plus hams, at some point I need so much, not sets by the way. It's not necessarily sets, but the amount of stimulus I need and the fatigue that comes from that at some point will aggregate or aggregate to, to more than I can recover from. But if you're not anywhere near your like genetic potential, you're not a super mega strong bodybuilder, you haven't been doing this for a very, very long time, this is not you. That doesn't mean you can't do specialization phases. It doesn't mean you can't, that I think that there's a big net negative. Just definitely don't think it's something that I think most people need to be thinking about. I'd love specific recommendations for macro-friendly restaurant and fast food options. I am going to shamelessly plug my bestest friends in the world, uh Butter Your Macros. Actually, I don't know if you guys know. I actually maybe they're going to correct me if I'm wrong. I actually think Butter Your Macros, uh let me let me get it. Let me actually pull it up for you guys. I think they started as a page that literally did this. Um Butter Your Macros. It's not Butter Your Macros, but I mean it is Butter Your Macros. Heidi, Natalie, I love you if you're listening. Um but they have another uh, another page. Fuck me, man, what is it called? Bought um, of your macros, come on guys. They have another page that is literally specifically, has every single fast food item that you could imagine uh, from every single restaurant all macroed out. It is a page that goes through just that. That is literally the point, but I'll put it in the description for you. Um, I know who asked this question. You can shoot me a DM, I will find it for you. I cannot believe I blew that. Um, they did an amazing job. Every restaurant you can imagine, they have it in, their, in, that, uh, in that page. I think it's a wonderful page. Next, is it normal for the toes to point outward during seated hamstring curl? Yes. Um, what I would, like, you're going to have a certain amount of normal external or internal rotation, a certain rotation of your femur that is just natural. And when you think about, like, do I want you to actively point the toes out? No. Do I want you to actively point the toes in? No. I would want them to go where they are most comfortable, which probably is not on either extreme. Um, So I would not, I'm going to see if there's anything else I want to say, because the truth is I just don't want you to think about this at all. I want you to adopt a foot position that allows you to feel mega strong and super stable and to do that movement super effectively well. That's what I want you to do. If you point your toes a little straighter and you feel better like that and you feel stronger, you get a better ham st- stimulus, you can lift more weight with good technique. I want you to do that. But if you're doing it and you're saying, hey, I'm gonna just, not subconsciously, but kind of kind of subconsciously adopt a technique where I feel very, very strong and stable and I get a good ham stimulus and that so happens to have my feet slightly out, I want you to do that, trust me. It's less about a specific specifically optimal way to do it and more about exploring what sort of foot position. Again, it probably won't be, it probably will just be something natural, mostly pointed forward, but off to the side a little bit is okay um, that you feel really strong doing. I, I would I would spend less time thinking that there's an optimal and more time considering how you feel during the movement, which is, I think something that more people need to do uh, more often. I got time for a few more. We got a lot more, but uh, we'll do five more maybe. Let's see. It depends. I might go tangenting here. Well, next question. When starting a cut and it comes to training, should you still opt for progression each week or at least maintain strength? Um, okay, so you should continue to try to progress. If you were to graph out your progression expectation at maintenance and a surplus, you would expect that progression to go up across a mesocycle. And whatever the slope of that line is, like however steep that line of progression is, at maintenance, just assume that it won't be as steep. You might progress for the first three weeks and while you normally would progress through all five weeks or so, maybe you hit more of a wall where you have a little bit more matching week to week than you did normally where you would have potentially beat every single week. So I would just lower your expectations. I don't think that from day one of your cut to day, zero, to day you know, 80 of your cut that you shouldn't have progressed at all on anything. It's more likely the case that you've progressed on something just a little bit slower. That's more likely the case. that, that is I'd go almost as far to say as that's the expectation, but if we're being totally honest, who gives a flying fuck? Because at the end of the day, what you want to be doing is succeeding in your cut. You want to be training hard to send a muscle retention stimulus. As much as as much as much it would be cool, as much as it's a cool concept to gain muscle in a deficit, the amount of muscle that you would gain with everything being done super optimally is a fraction, a small fraction of what you will gain at maintenance and the surplus in the future. And so... If you didn't gain one ounce of strength, if you do, if you on day one you did 100 pounds for eight reps, and on week 12 of your cut you did 100 pounds for eight reps, who gives a shit? If over those 12 weeks you succeeded in your cut, that's what matters. So, to to me, the minute I go into a cut, I I just totally don't care about my expectations of muscle growth during that time. I don't care about my performance expectations. I lower them. I'm still trying to progress each week just like I was, but I'm not getting down on myself if I match last week, if I don't progress on everything. Like I'm just, I'm trying to progress. I'm not giving up on the attempt to progress, but I'm certainly just not like hanging my emotional hat on whether I progress or not. Like I know 12 weeks from now, I've lost the fat that I want to lose, for example, and whatever muscle I gain during that time is a very small fraction of what I will gain in the next 12, 12 weeks at maintenance calories or surplus. And so it's just, if you gain some muscle in a deficit, it's gravy. That's what I want you to think. If you have performance increases in a deficit, it's gravy. I definitely don't want you to regress. I definitely want you to try to keep progressing, but more than anything, man, nail your calories, nail your protein, nail your steps. Be consistent with your nutrition. Lose the fat you want to lose, so you don't maybe have to do this for a super, super long time. And then get back to you know training with more food, which is way more productive. And so you still want to train hard. You still want to try to progress. You probably will still progress if your ducks are in a row. But I would see it as gravy if you do progress, even though I do think you will. I would just lower the expectations quite a bit if you start matching what you did last week, but you know you're training hard, but you know you're training hard. That's what maintains muscle and you're gonna be good to go. Cool. If I count swerve carbs in daily carb goal, am I going, am I over counting carbs if sugar alcohol not absorbed? Um... So I'll reread this because that was that was gibberish. I, I blew that. If I count swerve carbs in my daily carb goal, am I overcounting carbs if sugar alcohol not absorbed? The, so basically, swerve. What is which? Uh, which sugar alcohol is swerve? I got my laptop here. It's erythritol, I think. Swerve is a natural, delicious natural sweetener. Bruh, tell me which sugar alcohol it is. Um, it's a blend of three ingredients. Erythritol is the first and most prominent. Uh, what else is in there? Whatever. So let's just say it's erythritol. So basically you do not absorb all of the calories from erythritol. Sugar alcohols like erythritol, sorbitol, maltitol, all of these like tall at the end, T-O-L, um, we do not absorb all of the calories. It's a little bit like fiber where we don't absorb all the calories from fiber. If you eat one gram of carbohydrates or one gram of fiber, um, if something has, let's say, you know, if you would, if it would normally be four calories per gram of carbohydrate, a gram of carbohydrate from a strictly fiber source is more like something like two calories. Um, so when people count net carbs, I'm not gonna go on a big net carbs rant, but there is some truth to net carbs. You know, net carbs is a not, it's not a recognized term. Uh, it's an extrapolation on the truth. We, you know, net carbs essentially is where companies will subtract all of the calories from fiber Assuming that we extract none of them. And so, if you have a, if something is 100 calories and 15 grams of fiber, they say, all right, 15 times four, that's 60 calories. We're going to take 60 calories off and we're going to say, this is only 40 calories because you don't absorb those 60. It's not true. We absorb some of them. We absorb a different amount depending on the individual, your gut microbiome, other genetic factors. We also absorb different amounts in terms of what type of fiber, or in this case, what sugar alcohol it is. And so, there's enough of an individual difference where I don't think we can get too, uh, caught up in exactly how to go here. Personally, if you want to be particular, I would count this as half. And so is that what you said? Um, I would count it as half. And so if they are, if they are subtracting all of the calories from erythritol, I might add back in half of those calories. If you wanted to be precise, if we're being totally honest though, this, excuse me, this to me falls in the bucket of it's not making or breaking anything. Like if you have Something that has 10 grams of swerve in it per day, 10 grams of, you know, erythritol or some other like sugar alcohol sweetener, man, it's really not making or breaking anything. If you wanted to be super precise, sure, I'd go with roughly half the calories, but I really just, it just gives me like this blah sort of moment of like, if you didn't count them at all, as long as you consistently do that, then your numbers will be reliable. I feel like this concept is really simple, but hard to understand. Guys, if you even if this person is like, well, I'm missing 40 calories a day then. It's like, okay, you're missing 40 calories a day every day or every week you're missing roughly the same amount of calories. Over time, what you do consistently makes the numbers reliable. I don't care about the numbers so much so in absolute. They don't need to be in an absolute sense perfect. What they need to be is reliable. Is what you're eating more too much? Is it too little? Is it the right amount? Do we get super emotionally attached to the exact number of calories you're eating? No. I care more about relatively compared to what you want to be happening. So if you're trying to lose weight and you're not, then it's too many calories. If you're trying to gain weight and you're not, it's not enough calories. If you're trying to maintain and you're maintaining, it's a good amount of calories. Your habits are yielding maintenance. I'm not so concerned with like, well, I don't track green vegetables. So maybe I'm eating a little bit. Okay, so if you don't track green vegetables all the time, then Your habits are consistent. If the inputs are consistent, then the results, the number, the outcome, the calories, those numbers are reliable. We can rely on them to tell us if we're eating too much or too little because the inputs are consistent. Hope some of that made sense here. Uh, All right, next question. Uneven muscle growth due to uneven effort between muscle groups. Uneven muscle growth due to uneven effort between muscle groups. Uh, I love you. I know who asked the question. I don't know what you mean. Is that a thing? Could I have, could I grow more in certain places because I try harder with certain exercises that work certain muscles? Absolutely. Uh, Totally. Uneven muscle growth due to uneven effort between muscle groups. Yes. If your program has way more of something and way less of something, you're probably going to grow in that relationship or in that ratio. Um, that said, when you say, if my program has way more of X, you can't just count sets. And that's something that will be a part of my presentation in March and some content that I will be putting out after the presentation is over, after the conference, the Real Coaches Summit. Um, so you can't just be like, well, I have six sets of this and eight sets of that. And so I'm gonna grow 20 or 33% better in the eight set muscle group than in the six set muscle group. It's not, it's not that simple. You could You could have four sets that are more stimulative than 10 other sets, depending on what exercises they are, how close to failure, how you're executing them, all of that stuff. Next, do you have a on-the-go travel or hotel gym plan? Um, I think this is a little bit on the spectrum. The more you travel, the more of a plan you should have. The less you travel, like the less times you are in this circumstance, the more flexible and kind of laissez-faire you can be with this whole thing. So when I think of me, and again, I'll relay this to a different circumstance, but I'll just take myself because I'm on one end of that spectrum. I'm not traveling a whole lot. 99% of the workouts I do are in my in my garage. It's not like I'm traveling every weekend to like different places around the world and different hotel gyms. Because that's not me, if I go on vacation, I just, I just do whatever I want. I mean, Jenna and I, when we went to Disney, like we just went down to the gym and we're like, hey, let's get a quick workout before breakfast or something. And we just like looked at the gym and we're like, I feel like getting an arm pump. We just kind of do Whatever. I know that not everybody is has the knowledge to just go in and do whatever, but I think going in and doing whatever for somebody who doesn't, like when I say do whatever, it's like do whatever you feel like doing, which by the way, could be nothing. Like if you don't, like if you're one vacation, you go on this week off that you have, like it's not, it doesn't matter at all. Most of the people, my clients that I train that go on vacation, like I'm going on vacation, what should I do? I'm like, you should do whatever you want. If you're going on vacation and you don't want to lift, don't fucking lift. You're not going to lose muscle. You're not going to lose gains. Nothing's going to happen. If going to the gym is something you like doing, you know, maybe you're on vacation with all your in-laws and you're like, I need an hour to myself or half hour to myself. Going to the gym is something that will be a really nice treat for me. I love that. Go do that. You can either have a plan or you can wing it, man. I like thinking of it as a playground. When I go on vacation, it's a playground. Maybe they have new machines I've never seen. Maybe they have no machines. And I'm just going to make it up on the fly, get a pump, have a good time. I'm not going to make it too structured. That's because I don't do it often. If you are a business person who's traveling every single weekend and you're never training in the same gym for any week to week, then you probably want a plan that's based a little bit more around movement patterns. You're like, hey, I do two workouts per week and my A block is a horizontal pull. My B B block is a horizontal push. My C block is a three sets of a vertical press and then three sets of a vertical pull and kind of take it from a movement pattern perspective, something that, uh, some sort of template based on movement patterns you know, the other day is one, three sets of a hinge movement, three sets of a lunge, and then three sets of a leg extension wherever I am, you know, and I'm going to like roughly a two RIR on as many things as possible. You would want some form of a template probably based around movement patterns. Um, and I, and I've done that for clients absolutely before who are like, Hey, I'm going to to Thailand for a month, you know, and, and I don't know if I'll be in the same gym each time. or going to be traveling, but I want to get maybe a workout or two per week. It's like, okay, like Horizontal push of choice, three sets of eight to 12. Vertical press of choice, three sets of eight to 12, whatever it is, and you might show up and there's only dumbbells. so You're doing dumbbell press and dumbbell row, whatever. You might show up to a full gym with amazing equipment, great. Horizontal press, maybe you're picking a chest press or a cable press or a cable fly or something like that. Horizontal row, maybe you're picking a chest supported row or a machine or a T-bar row or cables or something. And so depending on how often you travel, the more you travel, maybe the more you'll want some sort of a template and an actual plan that you can apply to different places. The less you travel, the more I would take it from like a only do this if you if it enhances your vacation. Do you like doing this? You know, Jenna and I went to London and I loved going around to like local box gyms that were in this like shady underground. That was like super fun. We like doing that. I'm not doing it, I don't want you guys doing this out of fear because you're like, oh my God. I don't work out on vacation. I'm gonna fucking shrivel up into a raisin. Like that, that's not what's gonna happen. If you if you if you're going on vacation, work out. If you genuinely want to, do not work out out of fear for something bad happening. Nothing bad will happen. Even if you don't look at a weight, you might come back and you might feel a little bit weaker. But to fucking one week from that day, it's gonna be like you trained. It's gonna be no different. This stuff happens so slowly. Muscle growth happens slowly, muscle loss happens incredibly slowly, muscle regain happens incredibly quickly. We just need to stop putting so much of an emotional toll on these like one-off vacations. Train if you want to. If you want to train and you want it to be unstructured, just go and have like a playground day. That's awesome. I love that. Get a pump, do whatever you want. If you're train, if you're if you're traveling all the time, we're gonna be a little bit more structured with it. And, and that's cool too. And we're gonna develop some sort of a plan based around movement patterns that you can apply with whatever equipment that you have. Um, and that would probably take a little bit more of a learning learning curve for people to like walk into a gym and be like, well, I have to do a hinge pattern today. What can I do? Or a pole, a vertical pole. What can I use? Totally. And that would obviously be something that I would recommend spending some time on. righty, guys, we're gonna cut it there. We're at like 50 minutes here without uh, getting too long winded here. I'll let you guys go. So thank you to everybody who asked a question. We'll be back with some guest episodes next week and the following week. Got two really good ones coming up uh, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at jordanlipsfitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.